Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following program has some offensive language. Though none of us would be here without the verb deployed, it's thought by many better not to hear the verb deployed. It's Tuesday, March 8th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Pain at the pump. Pain at the pump. Let's talk about gas prices. Let's talk about gas prices. Yes, First Coast News, Florida. Let us talk about gas prices. I know if you had to fill up this weekend like I did, it is not great to your wallet. It's the highest prices we've seen in a decade, and prices rose about 44 cents in the last five days. The average on Sunday for a gallon of gas in Florida was three ninety-seven. I was with you until the reveal of the actual price at the end, because actually that would be great to my wallet. All of these national stories about how gas prices are the highest ever, yes, unless you include inflation, which is a thing I think we usually include. Anyway, it stinks. It definitely stinks. And then they give the average, the national average. But about half of the people are going to say, well, that's not as high as where I am. But the other half is going to say, oh, it's even higher for me. And then you feel further slighted. Oh, man, I really have it rough not living in Gurney, Ohio, with an average price of $4.08 below the national average of $4.17 today. It makes the news of yesterday, as on WUSA Channel 9 DC, seem outdated and a little insulting. As the conflict continues, analysts say expect the price of gas to get even higher. The national average price for a gallon of regular gas is nearly $4 now. AAA says that's the highest price in a decade. Have you seen my area, which is not Harney, Oregon, average price 461, but it's also not Catahoula, Louisiana, average price 401. They say all politics is local, but so are gas prices. What a way to feel left out of the national conversation. I'm getting all my local prices that I have been citing on this show from Gas Buddy. What a site. The thing that I want on that site is a plug-in that just doesn't say how high the gas prices are near you or wherever you happen to be in the United States, but has a calculator that tells you if it's worth driving 70 miles to Allentown, Pennsylvania to fill up your tank for less than the price of the trip. Uh, you might be able to see my illogic there. I should never have appointed Shaquille O'Neal my personal secretary of energy. I will be giving you more in-depth gas coverage tomorrow. I have consulted experts, and by experts mean I got about four friends and three of them used to work for Planet Money. But I do think the reason there's so much pain at the pump, pain at the pump, is that A, and this is going to be complicated, you have to know economics to understand this part, A, this shit's expensive, but B, the prices are really big. I don't mean high, though I do mean high. I mean the literal prominence of the font of the prices 
on the gas station sign, they're gigantic on corners. Nothing else announces their prices this loudly, or if they do, it's for things that they're really proud of, like lemons or pork chops at the supermarket. They get their prices put up in the window when the supermarket really wants to tell you what the price of lemons are. Exxon or BP, those guys just have no filter. In the case of BP in the Gulf of Mexico, that's literally true. So I don't know if there is much that Joe Biden can do with the tiny amount under his control in the strategic oil reserve or by re-engaging with Venezuela. But if China and Russia can throw a blanket over all the negative coverage of the war in Ukraine, which is to say all the coverage of the war in Ukraine, maybe Biden could just throw a blanket over the gas price signs. You'd still have to pay at the pump, but it would be more of a surprise. A fairly shocking one if you live in Androscoggin, Maine, price $4.22, less so in Finney, Kansas, $3.79. On the show today, I spiel about the UVA student who should have just used her words. Huh? Maybe not. But first, the combo of Kasich and Klepper might mean nothing to you collectively as a team. I mean, you know, individually, John Kasich's a former governor of Ohio, and Jordan Klepper is a funny talk show host. But these two rascals have a podcast that works. It just somehow works. What happens when the original Odd Couple gets a visitor from an unexpected source? Well, if you watch the original Odd Couple, you know that Murray the Cop or the Pigeon Sisters injected some hilarity, and so do I, in my upcoming conversation, Kasich and Klepper, up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Jordan Klepper is a comedian, a journalist, a, an improver. He was a Daily Show correspondent from 2014 through 2017. John Kasich is a very consequential member of the House of Representatives. He was the 69th governor of Ohio. Now, is this the part of the show where I just start naming people whose last name begins with K and see what they have in common? No, these two gentlemen have a podcast with the uh, unimaginative but straightforward name Kasich and Klepper. And I've listened to everyone and it's good, and it may even represent some sort of hope for dialogue and democracy. Maybe I'm going overboard. Gentlemen, welcome to The Gist. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I don't want any responsibility for saving democracy or hope for people's future. I just, let's, let's keep these expectations in check. Yeah, let's aim big and then, you know, overpromise, underdeliver, but still get a four-star review on iTunes. <laughs> That's what I say. Yeah, as long <laughs> as it's a four-star review. We need those reviews. So I have listened to the show. I have listened to the show extensively. And I discovered that you guys didn't really or don't really know each other that well, which can be good or bad. What's the most surprising thing you learned about Jordan, Governor Kasich? Well, I don't know if it's surprising. He's, you know, highly intelligent, very well read. And, um, you know, he's an improv guy. So, you know, you know what you say something he's coming after it we have fun together i think we have mutual respect and um 
And what I've I've learned about the <clears throat> the podcast, what I've taken from it myself, is it expands your mind. You begin to meet people you didn't know. You learn things you didn't know. And I was telling a buddy of mine last night, you know, us being older than people like Jordan or or my daughters who are 22, there's a whole world out there that we don't know <laughs> that we need to learn about. And what the podcast does for me is it gives me a reason to learn about that part of the world that uh, that I don't know much about. Yeah. Jordan, what do you think of that? I mean, this is part of what has been interesting about this podcast is that we we ha- we come from different generations and we're getting people kind of across the At board. 42, we- are you technically an old millennial? God forbid. No. I, I think I'm right on the line, right? <laughs> 79, 80. I think I, I yeah. what is right before millennial? We got the one that never Gen- had a, a good a name. Gen X. Yeah. Is it X or is it? Yeah. X, I think I'm a Gen X guy. Millennial doesn't feel right. I think well, I'm old enough to make fun of the idea of a millennial, uh, but not self-aware enough to make fun of myself. So I can't be a millennial. Because here's the deal. Um, the governor's 69. I, I know you know that, but I'm telling the listeners. Thanks. Thanks, you... uh, thanks, thanks a lot. <laughs> you know, I, I have to tell you, I was talking to my, my pal Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, and boy. I said, the name drops on this podcast. Yeah, Come for the I name said, drops. You know, the, the difference is I happen to know people and Jordan just talks to himself, you know. But uh, Jordan knows but a guy who does a killer no, impression I was of the to people Arnold. You know. It's really interesting. I've, yeah. I've known Arnold forever for, you know, 30 years or whatever. And I said to him, as he got older, you know, he talks about his birthdays and all this stuff. I said, Arnold, don't you ever think that people are going to think of you in a certain way when they hear your age? They assume the kind of music you like, the way you dress, whatever. I said, what do you think? He goes, no, I never think about it and I never worry about it. And it was like when he said that, it kind of woke me up because I, I think that age, look, when you I, here's the way I look at it. You can stay very much in touch if you're curious. If you if you don't let the little boy inside of you die, it's fantastic. You know, you've got wisdom coupled with uh, with curiosity. Given the demographics of the podcast listener, is it mostly a Klepper audience or a Kasich audience? Oh, that's a good question. I don't. I don't know. I don't think we 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 have. Uh, I don't think we have any understanding who is listening to this. So these are all complete projections. I mean, it, it'd be curious. I have an audience that I think. Uh, leans more progressive. And I think, you know, Governor Kasich is such a unique person in that world. There are definitely people in my audience who are mad to see that somebody would talk to anybody who might be on the other side. I think, to be quite honest, that's been revelatory to me in a very frustrating way, where I think, you know, Governor Kasich and I don't agree on uh, on things. There's politically, we come from different places. Part of what we really liked about this podcast is when we even first met, we spent the whole time talking about music. And we and and I have great respect for Governor Kasich. Uh, I think he's one of the few people who, with confronted with new information, is willing to stand on ideals and not stand by a party. I think that's the thing I consistently get frustrated with when I look at the modern GOP. And I think Governor Kasich, he stood up for the things he believed in. I, I respect that. And I think having conversations with people about what it is that they care about and the differences of opinion that we have, I think is very important. A lot of people in my family uh, feel very much like Governor Kasich and feel like a party left them behind in a way that is very frustrating. So I'm I'm so lucky that I get to engage in that kind of a conversation. And I get frustrated with the, the folks in my fan base who are like, cut that off. We shouldn't have these conversations. We're like, if we can't have these conversations, then 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 we're screwed. Then what what is what are, what are we trying to do here? We should be 
we should be challenging ourselves and not just listening to podcasts with people who are buddies. And in fact, I would argue a lot of our podcast is us on the same page because we're we're starting uh, a ways away from the things we know we might disagree with. So when we come to them, there's a better chance that we're listening to them with open ears. Jordan, I want to ask you a variation on the question that I asked the governor about learning about him. And it's a political one. So I know that there are a number of, let's call them policy positions that uh, John Kasich has and has championed that might be coded as more democratic or liberal. One is gun control, and he's very vocal and has tried to do a lot of mental health legislation. But my question to you is, I know you both agree on the excesses of conservatism, if you even want to call whatever the MAGA hat wearing crowd is but what is are there any kind of just solid rock solid conservative positions that you actually agree with him on well i think you're right i mean you pointed out the ones there is i think we, when we talk about mental health issues we talk about gun control and i think there is a lot of common ground that we find i i will say what has been nice with the governor and i is we've talked offline a decent amount over these last few months which has been good uh oh Recently, there are budget issues, uh, and it's pretty easy as a progressive to be uh, to get frustrated when you see half the country not invested in in certain things that seem like no brainers, climate change, infrastructure, things of that nature. And I can get up on my high horse and get frustrated because nobody comes together to spend money where it needs to go. And then I get on the phone with Governor Kasich and he tells me that I'm wrong, which is such a lovely thing that he does. Uh, and I really do appreciate it. Uh, but we can start to have a conversation about this. And it is true. I come from a more moderate background. I am progressive for sure. And I'm very frustrated with what I feel like there's one party that's engaging in politics and another party that doesn't want to engage whatsoever. And But I do think when I can kind of sit down and have that earnest conversation of like, why can't we spend on this or this or this? And Governor Kasich walks through like, here's where he's frustrated about where where money goes and where money doesn't go. And, and where progressives get up on their high horse and don't look to compromise. I think... When we actually get in the arguments, it's my frustration about the um, the politics of compromise and less about the actual policy, because that I am more than willing to to uh, secede position uh, and even because my knowledge comes from at that point comes from what I want to happen and not what I think is functionally best. And so I do think there are economic issues that I am much more conservative on that if if there was a world where we could have more open conversation, I do think there are better moderate paths to get things done. So your your co-host was the chair of the House Budget Committee. And uh, during that time, he was, uh, uh, you know, I'll editorialize and say a very capable steward. He did a very good job. And it's one of the things he is known for. And as I look at progressive politics today, I see no acknowledgement that there is such a thing as the national debt or too much spending, or even an acknowledgement that all of this spending that we did with uh, the first round of stimulus might have added to inflation. So it's great that you guys can talk it out and that you have one of America's greatest experts next to you who can explain it. But what's the solution for everyone who isn't personal pals with a former member of the House Budget Committee? <laughs> 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 well, I mean, you got you. First of all, you, you yeah, you, you have to find a governor. It doesn't have to be an Ohio governor. It can be there's there's at least <laughs> there's a lot of governors in America. So, you know, yeah. the stats are low. There's uh Ginder, which is uh, the governor Tinder. Just swipe left to find one. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you know, one thing I, I want to jump in, I was hesitating to say, but, you know, I notice, look, I have stepped out of 
it's not a big deal. It's the way I was raised. I've stepped out of conventional, you know, being sucking up inside the party and all that stuff. But I find it's really hard for people who are on the left or progressive or whatever to stand up against them. You know, it's like, oh, no, I don't want to do that because I might get thrown out of the, quote, party. I mean, the, not, a, not a political party, but a party. I might become less desirable. You know, if I if I start to and look at Bill Maher, he's a perfect example. Bill Maher has been excommunicated from, you know, from the Democratic Party, from the far from the left Democratic Party. Right. And he's taken a lot of heat. You know what it's been like for him. And he continues to do it. It is not easy to do. And my only concern about all this is there's excesses on both sides. And what I get tired of is when we just talk about the excesses on one side, and I can see them, I've criticized them, I've fought against them. I just like some recognition on the other side that there are excesses that need to be pointed out. And, um, and it's, it's hard for people uh, to be able to stand up against their own, quote, tribe. Yeah. But, you know, it's and hard. I'll, I'll comment on that. I, I did some of that in my life, and I think it's true. And I think a reason is that politics, and I'm wondering about your opinion of this, politics have become so intertwined with life. So it's no longer that you and your friends and neighbors, and maybe your friends and neighbors aren't even people who live near you, but it's no longer true that you could have political disagreements because the political is so much interwoven to everything about the social and about your group. And so therefore, when you risk saying, um, I actually think that uh, this the Build Back Better is bad, you're not just taking a policy position, you're taking a social position. And that, I believe, is a change that I have seen during politics, but maybe, you know, Maybe I'm overstating well, I, I it because of my position. Right. And the only way to yeah. deal with it is for somebody to be willing to take it on. Mm -hmm. But if you take it on, you know, you're going to have people angry at you. I've, I've had friends that I've known for decades who, frankly, our relationships are, are very, very tenuous now. I'm trying to rebuild a couple of them. And I can by picking on things that we laugh about and talk about and and kind of, as Jordan said, right. You know, don't don't start by talking about the things you disagree with. Talk about the things you agree upon. But, you know, it's hard in any group to step out of, outside of your tribe. And, and you got to take you got to take a punch. What you find is when you do, you have people that follow you and people that admire you and respect you for having done it. Jordan was down there at CPAC and he said he had people down there saying, oh, I like John Kasich, you know. I mean, how, if you did a survey down there, what do you like think two people, like there? two people. To, to be clear, well, this is this was this was I mean, not I, the general sentiment of CPAC. Now working in the it catering would, it uh, wouldn't, department. It wouldn't be, but see, I'm a believer that all this business about polling and you can't win unless you suck up the Trump. I think it's all BS. Yeah, you have a message and you have a strong personality. You got a thing you want to do. You can light a fire anywhere you go, as long as it's not some giant geographic area. You can change things where you live. I have no doubt about it. This is my observation, which is that people today, people running today, think that the way to do it is Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn and Lauren Boebert and the people who get all the attention. If you look at the Ohio Republican primary, this is a state with Mike DeWine as the governor, who's, I think, an excellent governor and a Republican, has been there for a long time. Rob Portman is the outgoing senator, 
Again, an excellent senator, very popular, served his state well. And even on the Democratic side, Sherrod Brown, who understands people. So it is odd to me that the message received seems to be that these people, these radical people who get attention online from out of state, that's who we should emulate as opposed to the successful examples that we have who have shown that they can actually appeal to Ohio voters. That's my observation. I mean, look, it, it's a combination of things. You got to have a little, I think you got to have a little bit of swagger. You got to have some confidence. You know, I remember when I was first starting, I've never talked about this stuff, first starting in politics, I was working with a state senator and he knew I was going to run and he saw me walk in this room and I didn't do much. And the next day he called me in his office. He said, John, let me just give you some advice. When you walk into a room, own the room, own it, figure out how to own it. Now, I didn't have to do that by jumping high or putting two scoops of ice cream in my mouth. It was a, a matter of the kind of presence that I was able to that I was able to exude. Right. Something that people could feel. And that those that that combined with intelligence, with knowledge is what makes for somebody who can go to distance because there's all kinds of people. You know, if, if there, there are people who just go the short run, they're reporters. Their job is to try to get played gotcha. I have no respect for them. And when I meet with them, I say, you want to be a reporter? You want to be a success? Go the long road. Don't be doing this chicken shit stuff, you know? And the, so the race goes to those who can, who can persevere. And, but I hear what Jordan's saying because you're down there and you see all this stuff going on, you know, all the flash and the dash. That's a problem with politics, too. Politics is not movies. It is not it is not entertainment. It is a deadly serious thing where you are involved in affecting people's lives. And when we lose that, that's why we're so screwed up today, right? I feel like now people are like, oh, you need to go in there and you own the room. And that politician walks in, they take down their pants, they take a crap in the middle of the room, <laughs> and they've, they've owned the room. And somebody's <laughs> like, oh, that seemed like a really quick way to own this room. Everybody's only talking about that guy who did that in the middle of the room. And then now you have people on the side who are like, I can relate to that guy. I've wanted to take a crap in the middle of the room. That'd be fantastic. That's, that's a relatable person. Who's this guy? I, don't, I, 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 can't, I can't understand that policy that guy's talking about. He's just like us. He, he yeah. doesn't crap down on us. He craps right <laughs> on our level. Yeah. Kasich and Klepper, I mean, you got a little sense of it with me doing some interjections, but it is, it has become for me a must listen. And uh, sorry, I won't say you're going to save democracy, but if you like productive dialogue and conversations, it's an excellent new podcast. Gentlemen, thank you both so much. Thanks for having us. Early enjoyed it. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. 
behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. And now the spiel. Yesterday, the New York Times published an op-ed by Emma Camp, an undergrad at UVA, titled, I came to college eager to debate. I found self-censorship instead. One common critique of the article was to assert that people who want to debate are usually insufferable. Another strain of criticism was to ask, well, who doesn't self-censor sometimes? And both of those groups proved they at least read the headline. The piece was yet another in a long line of arguments bemoaning the high cost of argument in America today. There are a few new details specific to Emma Camp in the piece, but the basic contours was very familiar to anyone who's been paying attention to the debate over if we can debate. And I do have to say, there are few people who are as familiar with this debate as I am. I have had the debate, quad debate, on the gist. I've discussed the discussion. I've also been an example in the national debate, having become that example in this discussion by having a discussion. So I think I can offer an insight. Consider this a guide for people maybe who aren't so firmly set in their opinions that new evidence can't just jostle around some of the beliefs you might hold. So before I tell you if I agree with the claim or what I think of the counter arguments to the claim, it's important to actually make the claim. Because the phrase cancel culture hangs over this discussion, but what an inexact phrase that is. Inexact to some extent because it seems final. Canceled connotes a firm ending, which is why the cable companies don't let you do it over the phone. So if you can demonstrate that the so-called canceled party exists in some form or maybe has been resurrected, it seems like what you're proving is, well, there was no cancellation there. How can someone be said to be canceled if they're still thriving or even just surviving? What might be a discussion of, now did that punishment fit the crime? Or what could be a discussion of, was the process that led to a social shunning fair? It gets turned into this. Oh, he's not canceled. He just sold out Madison Square Garden. Or she's not canceled. She had a substack focused on the word canceled. Do they exist? Are they still making some form of a living? So a few things. One, just as Taxi was canceled by ABC and picked up by NBC, not all cancellation is permanent. Uh, or think about the ups and downs of your gym membership. It might look like a sign curve. Some periods you may have actually canceled the membership, but look, you're back there now. So cancellation isn't really final. I think we're getting too hung up on the word, or a lot of the people debating the idea of cancel culture are really fixated on the word, what it means to cancel. Now, this isn't just by accident. Some people really don't want you to understand it. Republican Senator Ron Johnson says the blowback he gets every time he alleges the election was stolen is him being canceled. Bob Baffert claimed cancellation because his horse was disqualified from the Kentucky Derby. The CPAC conference was dedicated to the so-called rampant cancellation experienced by patriots just because they're patriots, defining patriots as voicing some support for those who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. So let's not think of cancellation as any of that. In fact, I say let's not think of cancellation. Let's define this phenomenon that we're talking about as meeting an argument with a punishment. That's it. Cancellation is when the audience for an argument seeks to extract a punishment from those making the argument. 
Now, I wouldn't say Emma Camp was canceled or cancellation was in the air at UVA. I would say she is alleging that her beliefs were met with a type of punitive illiberalism. Let's try to strip from the question as many subjective words as we can. Remember, what we're discussing is this trend of meeting an argument with a punishment. I'm not going to call it cancellation from this point on. In fact, Emma Camp only used the word cancellation once in the essay, and it was about canceling, literally canceling, speakers who came to campus. There are, by the way, to complicate this whole thing, there are a few instances where it's not wrong to want to punish an argument. A literal call to riot could be such a case. Some people might say endorsing a political belief so extreme as to threaten safety is such a case. Then, of course, there is the effort to expansively define what constitutes a threat to safety. But rather than debate what would be a proper example of meeting an argument with a punishment, I'm sidestepping uh, the normative questions. I'm just concentrating on the definition. Canceling is meeting an argument with a call for punishment. Okay. Camp is alleging that her opinions that didn't fit comfortably inside the orthodoxy of her campus, which is to say a progressive orthodoxy, typical of most elite campuses. She's saying they were greeted with hostility. Some of her evidence gets there better than other pieces. Some of this hostility might have been in her head, but Camp says that her perception of the hostility caused her to shut down, to hold back, to be guarded in ways that saddens her when she thinks about what a college campus should be for. Statistics seem to agree that her perception is not uncommon. 65% of students strongly or somewhat agreed that the climate at their school or on their campus prevents some people from saying things they believe because others might find it offensive. That was one survey. Fire found that. There are ways to parse that, to say, well, sometimes agree and what they believe others might find to be offensive. But survey after survey shows a quarter of students say that their school should protect students by prohibiting speech they might find offensive or biased. So it's not the prevalent view, but a significant percentage of people on campus say that. And survey after survey shows that about a third of the students feel frequently intimidated out of speaking freely. There are a lot of explanations as to why you could nitpick one of the survey results. And in some of these surveys seem to be about other people's perceptions of the perception. But if you take these surveys, like we do almost all surveys, I find the argument convincing that there's something of a chill on campus that prevents a lot of the people on campus from fully expressing their opinions. If we were to nitpick surveys to this degree on crime or inflation or global warming, we'd pretty much never know what our fellow citizens think about any of these issues. But in this debate, there are many, many counter-arguments. Counter-arguments to what? I'm going to remind you of the thesis again. That ideas are being met with opprobrium. That it is a prevalent and pernicious development that speech is being met with calls for punishment on campus and in society. Here are the counter-arguments. I'm not going to go through every one. I'm going to give you three main categories they all fall into. One, this thing, call it cancel culture. No, don't. Call it meeting an argument with a call for punishment. This thing that you're saying is happening isn't happening. Counter-argument one. Counter-argument two. What you're saying is happening is happening, but that's not a bad thing. And three, what you're saying is happening and it was always ever thus. Nothing new. I have notes about all these arguments. I could lay out the subspecies and slight mutations of each argument. I could talk about the 
This is far from the biggest problem in the world counter-argument. There's the, if you think you have it bad, this other member of this other community that we presume you're not including in your critique, they have it worse. I know that one. Could talk about that. I could go Khan Academy on you if you want a six-parter, if anyone cares. But what I want to do here is just, one, define the argument better than the phrase cancel culture, but also, two, point out one phenomenon of the people who are absolutist in their rebuttal of this idea. They just say it's not true. They use one of the three arguments I talk about to explain why it's either not true or not bad or nothing new. So of those who rebut or deny that there's a corrosive phenomenon of meeting speech with punishment, many, many, many of the people who reject the premise have never expressed an idea outside the accepted progressive consensus. When someone like Emma Camp or Ann Applebaum or Yasha Munk or Noam Chomsky or Nick Christakis or Malcolm Gladwell points to some example of someone somewhere whose idea was met with a call for punishment and that being bad, there's always blowback. That's fine. We could debate blowback or we can't as the case may be. But the blowback always does seem to come from within the progressive consensus. Now, normally, if a cultural theory doesn't hold water or doesn't accurately describe the phenomenon that it's pointing to, there will be fair brokers who aren't speaking from a place of self-interest who point this out. Let's take the idea of the war on Christmas. By the way, there are a lot of people who rebut the idea of quote-unquote cancel culture exactly like most decent, normal people rebutted the idea of the war on Christmas. You're just making a big deal out of literally nothing. This isn't happening. You're just saying this for propagandistic reasons, right? But when it comes to the war on Christmas, you could find plenty of actual priests, people who love Christmas, who say that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Facebook, here's another idea. Thesis, Facebook represents a threat to democracy. You could find people for and against that proposal who worked at Facebook, were top employees at Facebook, and people for or against that proposal who never even go on Facebook. There's a wide range of people on both sides of the argument making good and bad arguments. But with the idea that Ideas should not be met with punishment, but with the cancel culture idea, where the premise is punishment is called for or being visited upon those who express opinions outside the progressive orthodoxy, it's only rebutted by those inside the progressive orthodoxy. And the people who cheer them on, the rebutters on, also thinkers from inside the progressive orthodoxy. There's a podcaster and writer named Michael Hobbs. He wrote a long treatise, as long as this even, on how cancel culture or burgeoning illiberalism toward non-progressive ideas is nothing but a moral panic. He's useful in that he's an absolutist. He makes no concession that, yeah, maybe one or two times on a campus somewhere, they did go over the line. That was wrong. But while I read through Hobbs' work on this and found plenty of flaws, a big blind spot was that he, to my knowledge, has never expressed a thought outside of progressive sentiment. On the question of, are we punishing those who don't strictly adhere to a particular worldview, we're only hearing from those who adhere to that very worldview. His audience seems to be others who seldom stray from that worldview. I have never heard him engaged with outsiders to the view, who test his theories. Dunking on hated Twitter foes does not count in terms of engaging. Hobbes isn't the only one like this. Online progressive communities are absolutely ripping apart the idea that there is undue punishment towards thinkers outside their communities. It's a little like a synod of bishops agreeing in the 1600s that there are simply no headwinds for geocentrists. 
If the cost of ideas outside progressive orthodoxy were zero, if, there's, if this was really no big deal and just a moral panic, we'd have quite a number of thinkers who frequently traffic in ideas outside progressive orthodoxy, joining in and saying, eh, nothing but a moral panic. We'd hear from economic professors who warned that the Recovery Act wasn't worth it because it would add to inflation. They'd say, yeah, that's fine, but my ideas were totally supported by everyone at the university. The criminologist who looks at the abolish jails movement and think it's just a horrible mistake, he would provide testimony saying, I felt 100% unencumbered in expressing my opinion and have heard from colleagues who disagree, but it was all incredibly respectful. A chillin' free expression? What chillin' free expression? I'd like to hear that sentiment argued by a geneticist whose research proves that hereditary intelligence is a major factor in educational attainment. I want to hear from an Israeli who, you know, doesn't support Netanyahu, but does support Neftali Bennett. I want to hear her saying, yeah, I bring this up frequently in class. And the message I get back is, you know what? I respect your opinion. Thank you for offering your firsthand experience. Never heard anything outside of that general sentiment. I mean, maybe there are these people out there who say, I have never in a place like a college campus or the op-ed pages of general interest magazines or newspapers or in spaces that are said to be dedicated to discussion of social policies. I would like to hear a whole bunch of these people who say, you know, I break from the progressive orthodoxy, but I don't see any sign of what you're talking about. People who worry about punishing ideas. As for me, I have concluded, and you know this, you could tell, that there is a problem there is a problem in this drive to punish arguments that are more properly met with disagreement and not punishment. I do not think it's the greatest problem in the world. If it's not the war in Ukraine acutely or global warming generally, nothing's the greatest problem in the world. One of the reasons that I'm sure there's a problem is that the coalition of people who agrees with me have a gigantic range of ideological positions. But I think everyone who disagree adheres to the very positions that are never punished. But they are punished, Mike. Book banning in Tennessee. And that's my point exactly. That is totally cancel culture. Of course it's cancel culture. Of course it's punishing an idea. Of course it's meeting an idea or the expression of an idea with a call for punishment. I can see that because I can see it. In this case, the ideology of the punishers does clash with my own ideology. But if it didn't, I would still be able to see it. The moral panic theorists can't see that. So I say, let's not be solipsistically ignorant. There is a difference between something that's not a problem and something that's not a problem for you. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of said GIST. Michelle Pesca is Peachfish Productions. Well, she runs the office of the censor who shall cause to be censored in her absolute discretion. Communications by mail, cable, radio, or other means of transmission passing between the United States and any foreign country which may be carried by any vessel or other means of transportation touching any port, palace, or territory. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries, check out advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening.